Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. We have a couple of exciting guests lined up for you today. Craig Davidson is an author. You might know his work. Books like Cataract City, uh, Rust and Bone, a collection of short stories, was made into a Marion Cotillard movie that was nominated for an Academy Award a while ago. The Fighter, uh, Sarah Court, he was nominated for a Giller Award. Uh, he's all over the place. He has a new, really great book out right now called Precious Cargo. Craig and I sat down, we had a long, wide-ranging conversation about how he got a start and how he ended up writing a memoir about driving a bus when times are lean for him as an author. But we're going to get to that in just a second. First up, I want to introduce you to Larry Weinstein. Now, Larry's a documentary filmmaker. He specializes in making music movies primarily classical music movies, although he's veered off. He's just taken a slight turn, not too far out of the wheelhouse, with a movie called The Devil's Horn. Now, the sexy and seductive sound of the saxophone is probably as close to the cooing voice of a loved one as any instrument can be. And yet, it's for that very reason the instrument has this long and kind of crazy past with more intrigue than any James Patterson thriller. Larry was fascinated not only by the sound of the saxophone, but the history of the saxophone. So he made a film called The Devil's Horn. It's a great look at the creator of the saxophone, Adolf Sax. We'll hear all about him shortly. Uh, and the sort of curse that goes along with playing what is probably my favorite wind instrument, the saxophone. Here's Larry Weinstein talking about The Devil's Horn. When did you first become interested in the saxophone? Well, I mean, the saxophone, I mean, I, 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 you know, I kind of have loved classical music for a very long time, but the saxophone always had a real appeal to me. And even within classical music, I would listen to the way Debussy used it, the way Ravel used it, the way uh, various French composers used it. But, 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 of course, with jazz, whenever I went to a jazz ensemble, my eye went straight for the sax, and it was the sax star that I was always going for in terms of this whole cursed thing. Uh, well, I had, I had heard of uh, this book that had just been published in 2005, The Devil's Horn, and it, it, and uh, I just found it fascinating. I just found it fascinating. But now, it, it, there's obviously no truth to the idea that the saxophone is cursed, but when you start adding up all the facts and figures and assassination attempts and drug addiction and all that kind of thing, it seems like there could be uh, some truth to it. What's your take? Yeah, I, I think there is um, some really strange, you know, it's one of these things that uh, the truth is strange in the fiction, and certainly the life of Otto Sachs is, is terribly bizarre, and, and it looks like it's entirely fictionalized in the film, but everything that, that the film says about Otto Sachs is true, all these near deaths he had as a child, and and then the, the terrible jealousies of all the other instrument makers actually trying to kill him and twice, and and uh, burning down his factory, and then him getting this cancerous growth that he, it was so large he couldn't eat or drink or breathe, and, and some mystical doctor... Uh, healed him, and then it was found out the doctor was a fraud, and and then by the time he was ready to come back to work again, his patent had run out. So all these other people, so he died in total poverty, and he's one of the greatest geniuses in the history of of music. So so it's it's an incredible story, but but this idea of the this weird curse, and and also the fact that Otto Sachs himself. 
had had a dream that that devils with saxophones were pulling people's souls to hell. Like he he invented that whole idea of the devil's horn, and then and uh, you know it was constantly being banned, and the saxophone itself, you know, banned by the church by a pope at the turn of the century. Pope, one of the Pope Piuses, I think nine, I forget what number, but but also you know. Uh, jazz band in Germany and the symbol of it was the saxophone and 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 and, and very very much uh, uh, limited in bands and and in in uh, so in the Soviet Union as a, an expression of decadent Western you know music and and same in China and and then uh, in Hollywood itself for being too sexual during the uh, Hayes Code years. Like, it's just a bizarre, that's just the instrument, let alone the players who had problems from the beginning. And I think there might be reasons for that. But, but by the time you get into jazz and bebop, you, you know, it's well documented. And yes, there's other instrumentalists who have those problems. And yes, it's even in classical music. But for some reason, not to the extent, it seems that the saxophonists have have suffered, and I, I I'm not sure what that is. I think I think it's that whole thing about it being like the human voice. I think there's something very vulnerable about it, about about, and I, and I didn't believe that either. But it, but it's true. And I took some saxophone lessons, and I have a tenor sax, and I I I see I see what it's about. And, well, I was going to ask you about that. So they say it's the closest thing to the sound of a human voice yeah. that an instrument can make. And, I mean, is that where the idea of its sensuality and sexuality comes from? I, I think so. I think the fact that it can moan and, and you know, and just sort of weave around seductively. And, and uh, I, I always thought when it talked about the human voice, I thought it meant the timbre of the saxophone, because like the human voice, you have the alto and the tenor and the soprano and the bass, and it's, it's all those ranges of, of the human voice. And, but, but I think it also has to do with the fact that it can kind of bend like strings and 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 it can growl and it can and and also that that it uh you can play with so little air and it can whisper but it can also scream it can be much louder than most of the other brass instruments even like it can do everything and um that that so it it can kind of amplify on the human voice as well and uh, but but because of all those factors Every saxophonist does sound quite different, I, and I would I would say much more so than trumpeters or trombonists or French hornists or or string players. I, I think, you know, of course everyone can tell Miles Davis from other people and Louis Armstrong and maybe Dizzy Gillespie, but I think it's limited when you listen to a trumpet. Like, oh, that's so and so. Yes, Chet Baker. Okay, I'm, I'm now I'm thinking of all these great examples of trumpeters, <laughs> but <laughs> but I would say the saxophone more so. More so, and uh, you found some uh, contemporary players. Uh, the fellow's name who we meet in the park, whose name I can't Giuseppe remember. Logan. Giuseppe Logan. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that happened. Well, Giuseppe is someone. Well, <laughs> actually, um, I I was looking for a saxophone, and and I went to Sam Ash in New York, uh, and I found my my French Selmer tenor. I shouldn't tell you that I bought it from New York rather than Toronto, but uh, but it was an old, uh, it was an antique French um, thing, and it it was a good deal too. And they to and I told them kind of the salespeople what what I was doing and why I was there, and they told me about Giuseppe. 
And but the thing is, I knew Giuseppe's music already. I, I had seen him in in Tompkins uh, Square Park because my daughter was living half a block away from where Giuseppe plays. And the moment you open the window or go outside, you can hear his weak tones. And so I had already given him money and and had bought uh, his CD, one of his old CDs, and and he's just. Uh, I had heard about him. I had heard that he was a man who who was in free jazz and fairly well-known in the 70s and then disappeared for 30 years. Everyone assumed he was dead because he was drug-addicted and he had all kinds of problems and he was uh, arrested and he was sent to some kind of a prison. Nobody knew, but everyone assumed he was dead. And then he showed up a few years ago back in that same park, toothless, and, and playing the saxophone. Somebody gave him a saxophone, and he needs the very softest reeds you can possibly get because he can't make a sound otherwise. Um, and, and so I, I started to film him. But, but, but I filmed him in 2012, and at that point I had a different idea of what the film was going to be, and I actually thought he was an outtake. I didn't think I would use him because I assumed my film was going to be a film about the great saxophonist. And when I heard the way he played, I just too couldn't reconcile in my head, how am I going to use this guy? But the film evolved, the film changed, and I looked at the footage again, and I thought, he is wonderful, and the footage is beautiful. And we actually developed a new camera style um, based on being inspired by him, which we held on to for the rest of the film. Well, I, I love the stuff in his room. Yeah. The, the shot in his room, I mean, he can't play in there because it's too loud, I guess, for everyone around him. Yeah. So he's got to play in the park. But just to see him there, and it, you just sort of have this idea as he sits there smoking a cigarette that, you know, he really can't wait to get out and just play his saxophone. Yeah, that's right. Even though he had been, you know, even though he had been looted and robbed and beaten and... While we were filming him, there was a drug deal going on close to him, and there was, um, and they they assumed we were filming them, and they they chased us out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> and, and then apparently he was in a situation like that himself a few months later when we weren't filming and was and was shot, and oh. and and then so he was sent to this nursing home, and. Um, recuperating where he still is yeah. today yeah uh what do you hope people take away from the film you know it's a strange film it's because it's it's not entirely earnest it, there the thesis does sound tongue-in-cheek the whole devil's horn thing and yet there is i think a lot of humanity i i hope there's a lot of humanity within the film and i i'm hoping that i don't know that that it's just something that it's not a film that you expect. It, it, I, it, it's too early for me to really think about. I, I, I just kind of hope they feel for the people who are playing. And there's there's a real sense, there's a real uh, yearning about people who play their instrument and 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 believe in it and and the way these people use it. The the the, the priest, I mean the minister who heals with the saxophone, or the Bulgarian. Uh, man, Yuri Yunikov, who who was exiled basically from his country, and then but is desperate to play, even though he's been forced to drive a limousine for a living. Uh, but these people who are just in love with their instrument. I, I hope some of that is imparted. I hope people come out going, "Boy, I never knew that stuff before," and and sort of love the instrument because of it. And, and you know, I do. Right. 
I mean, I'm scared of the instrument because of the curse thing. I, I, I touched this instrument too many times, and my company fell apart after 36 years. So I just I blame it entirely on taking saxophone lessons. I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm not as superstitious as you, but I will never learn how to play saxophone. <laughs> the problem with saxophone is you, you pick it up, you blow into it, and there's a beautiful, rich sound right away. Auto sax made it so that people who can't play well sound good. Right. <laughs> By the way, that's that's the genius of the guy. The fact that he invented this this I, I think I said that to you, um, Victoria. All the other instruments evolved out of other instruments. Uh, all, all the woodwinds and the and the percussion and the keyboards and the and the brass all were had earlier versions. This guy in around 1840 said, I want to make an instrument with this sound, and I'm going to have to make it brass. I'm going to have to give it the mouthpiece of a clarinet. I'm going to have to give it the single fingerboard of a flute, and I know what sound I want. And he invented it. And, and most people, if they looked at an 1841 saxophone, or 1846 when it was patented, they would think it looks like a modern saxophone, and it sounds almost the same. So I find that amazing. The movie's called The Devil's Horn. Check it out. There's things in there that you did not know about the saxophone. I guarantee you uh, it's fascinating stuff. And Larry does a nice job at mixing archival footage in with some new interviews and, and news and views and history and things that you didn't know. So have a look at The Devil's Horn. Once you've done that, walk over to the bookstore and pick up a book called Precious Cargo. This is by Craig Davidson. Now, Craig Davidson is a really fascinating guy. He's a Canadian author. He's had loads of jobs. He's been fired from most of them as he is very, uh, very open about talking about. Uh, but he's a really interesting writer who has now written a memoir. When times were lean for him, when he couldn't make a living as a writer, he had to take on some extra jobs. And one of them was driving a busload of kids for a year. And he wrote a book called Precious Cargo about that experience. Great reviews all over the place. It's selling really well. I couldn't be happier for him. He's a nice guy, but he's got kind of a crazy uh, backstory. You know, he's a, a, a guy that made some headlines when he invited people to punch him at one of his book launches. Uh, he has uh, had one of his books, Blood or Rust and Bone, uh, turned into a, a film that was nominated for an Academy Award. And uh, he just continues to sort of rack up accolade after accolade. He's a really interesting guy. And here's my chat with Craig Davidson. You were born in Calgary, and then when you were uh, in your sort of early teens, I think, you moved to uh, St. Catharines, and you spent a lot of time at Niagara Falls. Yes. Niagara Falls is such a weird place to grow up in uh, that I think that lingering uh, memories and, and just the idea of growing up there must have influenced what came after for you. Would you say that's true? Yeah, enormously so. I think, you know, you talk to other writers, too, and... Um a lot of them you'll find that they write from the perspective of their hometown, wherever that happens to be. And I, I used to think when I was first starting to write, you know, why the heck wasn't I born in Los Angeles or New York or Paris <laughs> or somewhere that seemed to have some, like, interest? But yet my mind kept floating back to, you know, the streets of fond familiarity and acquaintance. Um, and basically my, my childhood and teenage formative years um, and once you actually start looking at any city, um, Niagara Falls being no different, there's so there's an intersection of so much mm -hmm. in 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 you know Cataract City and Niagara Falls. There's working class, um, blue collar, um, but there's also there's the tourist trade. 
um, and and there's tourists. You know, it's yeah. kind of one of these kind of uh, populations that swells in the summer and then it kind of shrinks back in the winter. It feels really transient. Very transient. Yeah. yeah, there's there's definitely that aspect to it. And then you've got the the cross border aspect. You know, and there's a lot of malfeasance going on <laughs> there, which is something that fascinates me. So yeah, I, looking back in it, it actually has turned out to be my element. And one of the nice things about it is not many people write about Saint Catherine. Right. So I've I've had readers uh, tell me that. Um, well, it's just really, no one talks about this place. Not, to me, it's like, well, why wouldn't they? But um, having lived there, that's obviously my my perspective on it. And when you're growing up there, do you go to Clifton Hill? Do you go hang out at the Houdini <laughs> Museum? Or is that the place that you absolutely avoid? Well, you, you used to. I mean, there used to be in your teenage, my teenage years, is you'd, you'd cruise the hill. That was kind of, you know, everyone get into their Pinto or their, you know, VW Fox and just kind of go up and down the hill aimlessly, mindlessly almost. But uh, I I think as you like grew older, yeah, not not so much. So that was kind of where like the interactions with the tourists. I mean, I worked at Marineland for years mm-hmm. and years and years, and that has probably found its way into my my books. Maybe maybe more so than the owners of Marineland really would ever wanted to. <laughs> um, but that's where the interaction with tourists. You realize you do take kind of an an oppositional view to tourists because you think they're really. Well, they're just basically big floating bags of money that you're trying to get as much. <laughs> uh, so you kind of just avoid them and, and stay to the bars and, and the places that the tourists generally don't know about, which become the places that the townies, such as myself, um, you know, gravitate towards. Yeah, that's the that's the Niagara Falls that people who aren't from there only ever hear about. Mm-hmm. Like I've been told, oh, no, Niagara Falls is awesome. Like there's there's great bars, there's all this stuff. And I was like, I've never found them. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I've been to the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum three times, but I've never found the great bars. <laughs> the Criminal Waxworks Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, that's where, or the, or the casinos that have moved in now and yeah. have given kind of a different, different tenor to now, things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, I preferred it, I think, uh, before all that. I liked it when it was the heart-shaped bathtubs and mm-hmm. the motels. Mm-hmm. I liked the Houdini Museum. I liked, you know, like the things that were obviously completely fabricated right, right. In, in all those museums. But it was fun, and it was unusual. It was our Las Vegas, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, and it was kitschy. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. But it was kind of like, there was kind of a down home kitschiness yeah. to it, uh, and, and glitzy, but in a, obviously in a very tamped down way, not Vegas way. And now with the casino, um, it just feels that there's not graft is not the word I'm looking for, but it's a bit seamier, I right. think. And, and, but maybe again, that's me looking at it from an adult perspective when as a kid, um, you just saw it through a different lens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did Oscar Wilde say? Is it something like it's the Niagara Falls is the second greatest disappointment of married <laughs> life? <laughs> so did you know that you wanted to be a writer then? Uh, way back then. Um, or I that probably, you were interested in I it. probably did. I, I, pro- I had a very supportive um, high school. I was very fortunate to actually have a creative writing instructor or teacher in high school. She was, you know, she was an English teacher, but she decided to kind of, of her own volition, make this creative writing course. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was casting about, like most of us in high school, for something that would enthuse me or that I had any, even the slimmest talent at. Um, and she came up kind of, I think, shocked to say, like, you know, Craig, you're not awful at this. <laughs> I thought you would be. I think most people thought you would be awful at everything, but you're, you actually seem to show some slim ability at this. And, um, you know, that thimble full of talent that um, most of us are blessed with. Some of us are blessed with an enormity mm-hmm. of it, but most of us get a little bit. And, um, you know, I'm, I made it my kind of calling and my cause to wrench as much out of a, as I could out of that thimble full. But it started, it started fairly early. I mean, there were lots of um, failures and rejections and everything along the way. And that's, I think, one 
thing that I thought of uh, being a writer, and you've probably maybe spoken to other writers, that you think, you sell your first book, and then it's just going to be a clear trajectory, and you'll just write until you feel like you don't want to write anymore, but it's much more a book-by-book kind of proposition. And that ties into Precious Cargo, which we'll get to Mm -hmm. uh, shortly. Precious Cargo is a memoir that my guest, uh, Craig Davidson, has written. We'll talk all about that uh, very soon. In grade three, you wrote a war story. Do you remember anything about this? <laughs> I, uh, you, you've been some really good research here. Um, <laughs> vaguely, I mean, I vaguely remember writing a, a story that uh, um, I, I might have actually kind of liberated part of the plot from some uh, TV show I saw or some, some movie <laughs> I shouldn't have been watching at that age. Maybe, maybe Tour of Duty. Right, <laughs> remember yeah, that old yeah, TV yeah, show? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, way back then, you're right. And then I got to illustrate it myself. I remember that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you, even talking back then, the, the writing bug had bitten quite early and it just took a long time to, I wouldn't even say refine it because that would be saying that I, it's refined at this point. I mean, it's a learning process um, to this day and it will be until the day I... It, it's a muscle. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, for me, I you know I I'm uh, a nonfiction writer. I write uh, much different sort of things than you do, uh, but I write about film and I write about music. And it is a muscle that the more you exercise it, uh, the the different it yes. gets. Yes. It changes over time. It doesn't necessarily get bigger, but no. it, it but it does morph and change into something else. And I read the stuff that I write now versus the stuff that I wrote. Uh, a year ago or two years ago or five years ago, and I see a remarkable difference mm-hmm. in it. I can still tell it's me. It, I, it's a style, I guess, that I have, but I take more chances now. I'm I'm willing to sort of push it a little bit more than I would have been when I wasn't quite as experienced. Yeah, I feel the exact same uh, feeling. Um, and and the, it is that kind of muscle um, in that, I mean, one thing that I did uh, kind of at a crossroads was um, I ended up getting into newspaper editing and magazine mm-hmm. editing, and that that was like every day you had to produce because you know you can't send out a paper with a blank space on yeah, page yeah. three. So <laughs> you you get to learn that you can write on deadline and you can write. You know, someone will pop their head into your office and say, "We need 500 words on X by yep. you know two hours from now," and you realize that you actually can write on a deadline. And then and then I carried it forward to be like, listen, I should write 500 words every single day on my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that way, you can, you know, mathematically, if a book is, say, about 80,000 words, the average book, well, you can have a book written in rough in yep. 160 days. So you're right, but it's just like every day flex that muscle and it will, you're right, it's not always a day it's stronger, but it diversifies it, it, in it some changes. way. Yeah, mm-hmm. It changes, yeah. I wouldn't always say it gets stronger and I'm not even sure that I would say it gets easier. Because for me, it hasn't really gotten easier. I write every day, mm-hmm. and some usually for hours every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, between writing, you know, whether it's a review or working on a book or whatever it is. But I do write every single day, and some days are way harder than others. Some days it just doesn't seem like you've ever done it before, and then other days, you know, it's, it's much easier. It's flowing out of your pen. I feel like we sound like we're, we are the same. <laughs> I, I know, I know from your career as well. Like I've I've called myself a Swiss Army knife kind of before. It's yep. like if you need this, I can. I probably have an attachment. I you know, sort of jack of all trades, um, you know, fiction or nonfiction or journalism pieces or whatever really yep. you need. And I think, you know, in a way that's something that served me well in my career and clearly it served you well in yours. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it teaches you kind of how the sausage is made. And right. I think that's something that's really important to understand yeah. how this works. You know, when I talk to people that say, oh, yeah, you know, I worked on my last book for uh, 15 years. I think, what do you do for 15 <laughs> years? Clearly, did you too, only yeah. write, you know, it's like... Uh, was it James Joyce? I think the famous story is he, 
he was such a slow writer that a friend of his came in and said, how's it going today, James? Mm-hmm. And, and he said, pretty good. I, I, I got seven words down, <laughs> and they're mostly in the right order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he had, like, critical, like, were they the right seven yeah, words? Exactly, you know, yeah. this kind of a thing. So I know I, I feel the same way, too, like 15 years or... You know, if someone could come and tell me at the beginning of the project, you know, like Donna Tartt, for example, takes right. t- now. If you said, you know, you're going to write the Goldfinch, I'd say, okay, I can yeah. hold on, I can, I can take that time. But of course, none of us know what we're working on and yeah. and what the possible success or failure of that is going to be. So, um, for me, the idea of taking ten years seems like astronomical. Um, but yet again, that's just a difference in in approach to the craft, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, there's the Stephen Kings of the world that seem to be able to write two books a year or mm-hmm. more sometimes. And and when he's not writing a book, there's, oh, there's another, another book of short stories coming out. <laughs> right. There's always yeah. something. That uh, is, is productive beyond being productive. That's obsession. That's obsession. Yeah. And that's kind of like uh, the, the guys that used to write for, a, you know, a penny a word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, Dickens and those guys, they wrote long, crazy, multi-part stories because they were getting paid by the page or by the word. And King seems to have that sort of ingrained yes. in him somewhere. Yeah, yeah. agreed. <laughs> He's a big fan of, of some of your work. And yeah, what, what... I mean, Mutual Admiration Society, me, me much more so for him than than the other way. But, um, and I, yeah, I, I, I admire that obsession because some will say, you know, he's he's ridden sort of crests and ebbs. Yeah. And I, I will kind of agree, but I read um, the the... The one that the um the Kennedy book, like yes. the, the, the oh, revisionist history. That was of such a good book, you know, and, and a thousand such pages a good book. long or something yeah. like it's not it like was his typical slobber knocker, but it was yeah. still like just a really well done book, and you think, man, this guy still got it, you know, he never lost it. His new book is called Precious Cargo. It's in stores right now, and this is something, at least in book form, that's a little different for you. Um, you've written about yourself. Uh, in journals and mm-hmm. things like that before, but this is a whole big look at this thing. Yeah, that's, that's it's a big old solid. Big <laughs> <laughs> and uh, tell us how you arrived at this. So we talked just before the break. So Rust and Bone comes out and and doesn't exactly set you up for life no, as a writer. No, so you've right. got to look at other options to make money, as yep. we all do. So uh, you took a number of jobs, and one of them was the thing that that led to this book. Yeah, yeah, uh, scuffling for work, living in Calgary. Um, Came home from a rather dismal job interview where you 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 knew you didn't get it, even though they didn't say it. It's yep. like we'll call you, don't call us. <laughs> uh, and re- recognizing, you know, the bank balance was to a point where I'm going to be, you know, living under a train trestle pretty soon here. Um, so I come home and there's a flyer in the mailbox saying um, school bus drivers wanted. And as I think I say in the book, it's like a case of mutual desperation. Yeah. Here's a company that needs people so bad they're putting flyers out. And here's a guy who needs a job so badly I'm going to answer it. So I called him and uh, went in for training. And once I passed that, which, you know, as desperate as I, m- I might sometimes say they are, like, I mean, the training was very intense and yep. very serious. I mean, it's an enormous responsibility. And then um, ended up, uh, you know, getting a route. And, and that was the spine of the story. Yeah. And at the moment that it was happening... Was it? Ju- I mean, it starts off as just a gig. Look, I got to pay my bills. My, you know, I I need to buy clothes. Did yeah. you have a child yet? Did you? No, no, no. that was all well ahead yeah, of me. Was, yeah. yeah, and so, but they're saying you need money. Oh yeah, and and so you you uh, do all that. Uh, did you know at that point, or at what point did you know that this is kind of changing things for you a little bit? Yeah, I think it was. It wasn't something that took that long to kind of acknowledge and recognize. I think again, speaking as fellow writers, um, you you know when there's. Uh, times in your life or or fundamentally galvanic occurrences that you say, 
um, this is really um, changing me in some yeah. way, and, and this is this is really powerful, a, a powerful experience. Um, you don't always write about it, you know, or you don't necessarily write about it in the way that I did in mm-hmm. a memoir. It might find its way into fiction, and it's done that way before. But I was I was probably not even a couple weeks into driving those kids when we started to really get along with each other, and they started being very revelatory um, and very honest and very hilarious. That you just think. I'm in. I'm in something. I'm in a very peculiar and lovely kind of area, you know, uh, with these with these kids. And and then then of course the worry comes um, as a fiction writer. Okay, um, I can do any number of callous and violent and unkind things to any character I might ever create. Yeah, yeah. Um, here we're talking about kids, real kids, um, real families. Um, how do I navigate all that? And and what was the answer? Well, I, mean, I, I mean, the book is the answer. Yeah. But, but what? What? How did you arrive? There, at right. That? There has to be a preamble before the book can even really yeah. uh, be thought of. Is um, well, I thought. Okay, my general sense was like, if someone were to write a book about my life, or or not about my life, but in which I was involved, how would I like to be approached? And so I told all the kids, listen, I'm I'm a washed up writer right now, but I <laughs> but I have written some books, and I may want to do this again. Um, and they were fine with it. But again, they're kids, so. So we're going to leave that there. You guys do know, but I wrote letters, you know, because I felt I could present myself better to the parents in in terms of letters, sent them home with the kids. Um, And we just sort of kept going all all year long. And and then when the book was finished, they all got very, very, very early versions of the manuscript. So if they had found anything there, and obviously a note from me and my editor saying if there's you know, I don't write books to hurt people. Obviously, right. that's not a you know, that's not something I would ever want to do. So, we we said if there's anything in here that you find hurtful um, or um, too close to the bone, let us know, and we can navigate our way around that. And in worst case scenario, if something was like kind of unavoidably hurtful, then you know, the we'll me giving the or, or me giving the advance back and just like no no book. Really? You know? Yeah, I, I wasn't gonna. You know, that was always something that loomed throughout this whole process. Is that if it wasn't. Um, if there was going to be any lingering hurt that this might potentially cause to anybody, um, I could write something else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what was the response? Well, the response was... The book was, is here, so yeah, I'm assuming yeah, exactly. it was good. Yeah, but... the, the response was <laughs> fine, you know. Um, no, I don't think all the kids have read it, you know, right. because, again, age-wise, um, it might not be something... I've, I've also said, you know, if it was sitting on your or my mm-hmm. uh, bedside table... Do I really want to necessarily pick that up? Uh, but we didn't get any kind of um, anyone with issues, and uh, so so we, we move forward with it cautiously, and, and to this day move forward with it cautiously. The book is called Precious Cargo. The author is Craig Davidson. Uh, now, when you say, you know, if it was sitting on our bookside mm-hmm, table, mm-hmm. would you, you know, would you necessarily want to pick spine. it up? Yeah. Um, I can tell you it's good, so crack the spine. Great. And the reviews have been great. <laughs> yeah, you, we've been very... Which must be, yeah, it must be pretty oh, good well, for I've you, right? I've certainly suffered a couple, you know, uh, terrible... I remember the worst one I ever got was for Rust and Bone. My uh, editor in, in New York, in fact, called me up and said, you're going to have one It's in the New York Times. Get ready for it. Uh, like, be excited. And it was Christmas oh. Day, and I went downstairs and uh, at my parents' house, and it was just a slam. Just Merry an Christmas. Ad, yeah, I had to go upstairs <laughs> and like, yay, Christmas. So this one has been, um, we've been very fortunate, uh, and it's much credit due to my editor and publisher, but... Um, yeah, it seems to, it seems to people seem to enjoy it, and uh, and again, mainly credit due to those kids because yeah. you having read it, I think the the 
parts of the book where there are the strongest and that really um, hit readers the hardest are the ones that I didn't really make up at all. It's just the ones where I took what the kids were saying and right. presented it directly to the reader. It's truth in, in yeah. reporting. And hilarious. You know, yeah. It's just funny, some of the stuff that they said, and, and, and I'm not to say heartwarming, but it really is quite heartwarming. And I felt like for coming from the place that I was coming from, it's like it was a very needful, necessary three or four hours a day that I had with those kids. Now, just to go back uh, a little bit, you, you got slammed in the New York Times. I don't want to dwell on the negativity of that. No, I don't want to dwell on the negativity of that. But um, that was a number of years ago. Yes. Yeah. And you you do have a, a child now. Yes, that's Th- right. Your life is much different now. Yeah. Do things like that uh, take a backseat to the life that you have now? So if you got that same review today, would it uh, yes, crushing. affect you? Yeah. I think what I have done is I've settled on, because as you know, too, like say if me and you had been writers back in the 50s or 60s, we would have had to face maximum maybe seven or eight reviews. And that's yep. only if someone had cut them out and mailed them to us right. and we were, you know, read them. Nowadays, I mean, Goodreads, Amazon, there's a million ways that you can kind of come across your own failings and inadequacies <laughs> as a writer or as any creative type. So I have, uh, me and my wife have... Uh, We've literally, it's like a child lock on right. my computer. Like I can't go to those sites. I can't go and look at those things because I would just nurse them and it would be, I'd get upset. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't not last nearly as long as it used to. I, I get over it. Yeah. But I think in ter- why even get over it? Just don't look at it. You yeah. know, I mean, the reviews are going to be the reviews. People are going to, you can never write a book that's going to please every demographic, every audience. So don't even worry about that. And, you know, people are, I think, honestly, if you're writing work that you feel comfortable and confident and, and want to go forward with, people are going to have a reaction to it. It won't always be good, but that doesn't mean you're not doing a good job. Yeah, I've, uh, if one of my books got reviewed in The Hollywood Reporter, and I oh. knew that that was going to be a review that could change things for the book. It was mm-hmm, a movie mm-hmm. book, and I knew that the people reading that would actually buy it, yes, if, yes. or not, based on that review. And uh, it was here. It was at the radio station, and I got an email from my publicist saying, uh, the review up on The Hollywood Reporter. I clicked on the link and handed it to someone and said, read, <laughs> just read the first few paragraphs to yourself, and then yes, let me know whether I yes, should have a look at this or not. With even a facial expression. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. It turned out it was okay. Oh, brilliant. Good, yeah, good, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so does this point to a new direction for you in terms of uh, – writing more books of this style, or are you a jack-of-all-trades in terms of, of dipping your toe into a lot of different genres? I think I'll continue to dip. I think I don't, I don't forecast another memoir unless I have another experience. I'm now 40 uh, in, in the latter half of my life that yep. is going to be as resonant as this one was. Um, but I do feel like, obviously, I'm sure the same as you, my themes are changing. You know, back when I was, again, Rust and Bone and The Fighter, these were like, again, angry young man books based on my sense of like what it is to be a guy trying to fit into this crazy workaday world of ours and, and being <laughs> like kind of vaporously angry, but having no real, th- nothing to pin it to. Right, right, right. So I don't feel that way anymore. Right. I I feel, if anything, more scared sometimes, you know, because you, you, you have a child especially and you realize that the world has got teeth out there and it can bite you at any time. <laughs> and not even you, it can now, more importantly, it can bite the people you really love and care about. So, um, you know, I think I want to write stuff that um, has value to me and maybe maybe in some way says something more than those earlier books did. I mean, that's an ambition. Whether, whether I actually ever catch that grail is another thing entirely. <laughs> Buffaloes with Kids, the saxophone, Larry Weinstein, Craig Davidson. What good stuff. That was a really fun afternoon, but I'm exhausted. Thanks for coming by, but I got to tell you, the House of Krauss is closed. Get out of here. 
Don't let the door hit you on the bum on the way up, but be sure to come back next week. You know, I always I seem grumpy when all this is over, but I'm always really happy to have you come back. Uh, we put a new show up every single Monday, and you never know who's going to stop by for a visit. Could be one of your favorites. 